Matt Lovericks. We are your co-hosts for an intellectual property law podcast series brought to you by Breskin and Parr LLP. You can find our episodes at breskinandparr.com slash podcast. There you can access all the episodes and additional information on each topic. There have been so many changes made to the patent and trademark acts and rules that we here at Breskin and Parr decided to do two podcasts. One about the changes to the Patent Act and rules. And this podcast about changes to the Trademark Act and rules. Our guests today are Janice Breskin and Mina Channa. Janice is a partner in our Toronto office and is the co-leader of the firm's Trademark Practice Group. She's a trademark agent that manages large trademark portfolios and does extensive work in search analysis, filing applications, oppositions, and cancellation proceedings. Mina Chan is a partner with Breskin & Parr in our Mississauga office. She's a lawyer and trademark agent, and her practice focuses on Canadian and international trademark protection. She has extensive experience in trademark clearance, search analysis, filing, and trademark prosecution. All right, ladies, Janice, Mina, the good, the bad, and the still unknown. So the long-awaited and significant changes to new Canadian trademark law took effect June 17th after more than five years of planning. So, ladies, how was the first month? Any preliminary thoughts? Well, that's a great, uh, a great question, Kat. We could spend this whole podcast session talking about not just the first month, but the five years of planning. But we won't do that. We'll be brief, right, Mina? <laughs> yes. It was quite a five years, first of all, as you know. We wrote extensively about the new law. We planned, we planned, we prepared. And finally, the day came, and it was kind of like Y2K, the year 2000. (laughs) We wondered what was it going to be like, and um, luckily, it went really well. Um, We were really prepared. Our staff worked incredibly hard, and um, let's see, Mina, where should I start here? We must have paid thousands of registration fees in preparation of the new law, um, deleting the use requirements. A lot of clients were ecstatic that they didn't have to file declaration of use due dates. We also paid a lot of renewals in advance to try to get the 15 years uh, renewal term, which changed to 10 years after June 17th. For anyone who follows basketball, though, June 17th was a huge day here in Toronto, not just because our new law took effect, but we celebrated the Raptors uh, parade. And so that's something we didn't anticipate, Kat. We didn't anticipate all of the thousands of people that were going to be downtown and our staff maybe being stranded. Um, So we actually had to close early to let everyone go home. And so that just shows you when you have all of these uh, plans and expectations, something unknown always happens. I have to admit, Uh, I was part of that parade. I brought the kids downtown, so wow. <laughs> celebrating that. So it was June something. 17th. So we'll never forget June 17th for multiple reasons. Um, we did expect there would be multiple glitches with the Canadian Intellectual Property Office's database, and of course, they did crash a few times. So we focused on taking care of all of our deadlines for June 17th first before we did anything else. And so it, it went really smoothly. Uh, I was very happy. So big day, June 17th. So um, Mina, what um, what are some of the big changes you've seen in the last little bit? So now that we're under the new trademark regime, I think one of the biggest positive changes that uh, Canadian practitioners are probably happy about um, is that the filing process has been simplified. Um, as you know, Kat, 
prior to June 17th, we had to specify at least one filing basis in an application. As you know, this could be pretty tedious, time consuming, especially when uh, you have applications based on use for multiple goods and services. So happy to report now um, we don't have to specify any filing basis at the time of filing. And this has really simplified the process quite a bit. It's very Euro of us. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we, we have uh, in line with other countries now, most other countries. Our clients are really happy about that as well. You know, it makes it a lot easier to get applications on file. Uh, so Janice, any uh, what, what's the bad? What's the ugly here? Oh, sure, you're making me say the bad <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I look like the bad guy. Well, I mean, there's lots of good, but there are some bad, depending on what your perspective is. And um, for those of you listening, the fees have increased. So it's more expensive to file Canadian trademark applications. And it might sound funny that it's a little easier to file. We have fewer bases, but it's more expensive because Canada has finally joined uh, the rest of the world and is charging class fees. So instead of it being $250 Canadian, which is already a bargain with our... <laughs> 30% off discount? Uh, that's right. <laughs> now we have class fees, $330. I'm not sure how they came up with $330, but uh, $330 is for the first class and $100 Canadian for each additional class. So if you're filing in multiple classes, it can get quite expensive. Okay, so that's the bad, Janice. Any silver linings? There's always the silver lining, Kat. As you know, I, I always look to find the silver lining. So the silver lining here is that... Um, although the fees have increased in terms of classification fees that we never had before, there's no declaration of use fees, there's no fees for reporting notices of allowance and registration fees. So we've really shifted the fees uh, at the filing stage and removed it from the later stage at registration. And also, we are very happy to report that the trademark squatting activity that we saw earlier has decreased. So for those of you who may not have noticed, we found hundreds of applications were being filed when Canada announced the new law uh, deleting the use requirements, but there was a big gap between filing um, between announcing the new law and implementing it. And that was a concern that we raised with, with CEPO. Um, and if I can just mention, um, Janice, that those applications were covering all classes of goods and services. So literally pages and pages of goods and services. Right, 45 yeah. classes of goods and services, which is why it was easy to identify them. And in fact, I have a file right on my desk today where one of those trademark squatter applications has been um, objected to, but I'm just waiting for it to be officially deemed abandoned. So now that we have these class fees in effect, we are seeing that the trademark squatting activity has decreased. And hopefully uh, it'll stay that way because it's a real nuisance and it's something we predicted. Um, you know, it just took too long to get this new law in effect, but it's here. During one of our last podcasts, Jonathan Birkinshaw and Tamara Weingast talked about the squatting issue, and he mentioned that it was something like $4,800 um, had there be been per class fees versus the 250 so I guess we're now in the category where the fees are so much more significant if they want to cover all 44 classes. That's right, yeah. 
So hopefully that'll be enough. You know, it's still cheaper it, than other jurisdictions. Right, <laughs> Canada's fees are still considerably cheaper than other jurisdictions. But hopefully, um, and and CPO to their credit took all those applications and examined them in batches, uh, put them ahead of the line, so to speak, to get them out of the way. And a lot of them have been abandoned. So hopefully. Um, in our next podcast, this will be something that we don't need to <laughs> discuss. Um, so, Mina, there was a lot of excitement leading up to the new law about Madrid. There was also a lot of anxiety surrounding what Madrid would look like. Um, so how's that going so far? Excitement indeed. I think we have a lot of clients who um, do file outside of Canada. And prior to June 17th, we'd have to go um, and file directly in most countries to do that. So uh, we are quite excited. I think it is too early to tell, however, how Madrid is going to actually um, kind of work out, how the details are going to work out. Um, I haven't filed a Madrid application yet, although speaking to one of my colleagues, uh, there were some technical glitches on the first couple of days, but that seems to be ironed out. Um, I guess for our listeners who, who don't know, um, as of June 17th, Canadian applicants can now take advantage of filing um, an application through Madrid, um, a single application in one language. It's one set of fees, one currency. So it's really um, aiming to streamline the process of foreign filings. Um, from speaking to our colleagues in other countries, they're saying if, if you're looking at you know three or four countries outside of Canada, Madrid is really a process that we should be looking at and clients will be interested in. And that for sure. We're not um, exactly sure of how much of a reduction in fees it's going to be, but it will be significant. Uh, the one thing we have seen, I don't know, Janice, if you've seen it yet, but um, a lot of our foreign associates are now reaching out to us and asking us to appoint our firm as agent mm -hmm. on incoming applications through Madrid. So that's uh, something that's been happening recently. Yeah, and we should be seeing lots of office actions coming our way. So for all of our clients and our foreign associate law firm clients that are filing Madrid applications designating Canada, SIPO is sure to issue numerous office actions. If uh, I mean, I think it's almost extremely rare for us to find applications to go straight from filing to advertisement, and SIPO is so particular with respect to identifying goods and services in ordinary commercial terms. There's new, you know, there's there's new and existing examination requirements that are very distinctly Canadian um, that I think will be helping lots with those office actions. But because SIPO's very slow with examination, we haven't really seen any of those um, office actions yet, or it's, it's still quite in the early days. Kat, have you filed any Madrid applications yet? I have filed one. And uh, what I found really surprising, actually, was how many countries are not members of the Madrid Protocol. So I had a client that was quite excited to take advantage of Madrid. They were looking at something like, um, I think, 45 or 50 countries that they wanted to file in, and only about half of them actually were members of Madrid. But I can tell you that comparing the direct filings to the Madrid filings, the cost savings was huge. I think the direct filings, the total filing fees net out somewhere in the, the tens of thousand range, uh, multiple tens of thousands, and the Madrid filing, I think it was a total of $9,000 in fees to cover something like 19 countries, which, um, that's that's appreciable. That's huge, yeah. And to our listeners who are contemplating whether or not to designate Canada, or whether or not there's advantages to filing a national application, much like we discussed when filing uh, in China, should we do China Direct, or 
Uh, can we cover China through Madrid? I don't think there's any downside to designating Canada in a Madrid application. Um, just be aware that there is going to be um, probably a few office actions that needs to be addressed and that you need to think about that in your budget, much like when you filed all of those Madrid applications, as inexpensive as it was, you know that there's still going to be a lot of prosecution fees. Yeah, and it's interesting because we did carve out some countries when we did it. So we um, we had conferred with associates around the world to figure out what the benefits and what the downsides of using Madrid were. Um, and there were a few countries that um, we strategically did not use Madrid, even though it was available. And the other thing, um, and I agree with you on the Canada being, there being no downside, because one of the main downsides that a few associates noted was the significant delay in getting a registration following Madrid compared to a national filing. So, for example, in Europe, that was noted as being a huge difference. You know, a national filing can register in three months, whereas mm -hmm. Madrid is often 18 months. But with Canada's current examination timing... Yeah. <laughs> and well, fact, I think the other disadvantage could be, as you mentioned, Janice, um, Canada is very strict and technical on goods and services, so you may end up with a more narrow specification if you go through Madrid versus if you went in some countries directly. Oh, that's yes. if you, right, that's if you're using your Canadian that's home right. application yes. for yep. filing Madrid. Exactly, and that's the I guess one of the disadvantages to uh, having a Canadian originating application. Um, so you did mention uh, examination um, and new examination grounds, Janice. I, rem I um, there was a lot of discussion about the new distinctiveness ground. Have you received any distinctiveness objections, or has that changed our assessment when we're conducting trademark searches? How how are we addressing that? Yes, and yes. <laughs> I think I've received at least four distinctiveness objections in office actions that issued, you know, since June 17th. Most of them have come with descriptiveness objections, or the examiner has issued an office action saying, um, we had to re-examine this application because it wasn't advertised before June 17th. Um, and so... For example, some of the types of marks that I've seen receive this new distinctiveness objection have been acronyms, um, they've been names, geographical words, and so there are usually multiple objections in addition to this new distinctiveness objection. Now, I have not filed any responses <laughs> to those objections because they've only recently come in, we've just told our clients, and it's... Um, you know, for uh, anyone listening who's a client, I apologize that we don't know yet mm -hmm. how successful mm -hmm. we're going to be at arguing against these objections. I think it's certainly worth a try on some of them. One of the acronyms uh, that I received wasn't a known acronym in the industry. So even though each word was descriptive, no one but our client uses this acronym, and I think that's an unfair or not an appropriate use of this new distinctiveness objection, but as Mina and Kat know, when SIPO has a, a new policy or examination uh, regulation, they just kind of, every time they see a mark that fits that criteria, they just, they just put in the objection, and then it's for us to argue against it. So I think these will be difficult objections to argue against, but there will be room in some cases. Are you finding any of them are like second office actions where maybe the first one was just a technical objection and we thought 
you know, you thought you got it through and then it's been Yeah, and that can be one of the frustrating experiences with SIPO. They don't always get all of their objections in the first round. And now they are specifically saying that they're looking at all applications again that did not um, get approved or advertised by June 17th. So, uh, so hand in hand with Madrid, we also um, implemented NICE classification system. It's all new to Canada as Canadian practitioners. It's a little bit dizzying. Uh, Mina, how is SIPO implementing NICE classification and what's your experience so far with this? Um, well, Kat, as we've mentioned a few times, I think the one big significant uh, change with implementing the NICE classifications has been the filing fees. So, I mean, we've been voluntarily classifying applications for some time, um, but obviously before June 17th, we didn't have to pay those uh, class-based fees. So as Janice mentioned, we're looking at, you know, 330 for the first class, $100 for each additional class. So that can be pretty significant if you have a long list of goods and services. Um, unfortunately, unlike the U.S., where those of us who file in the U.S. know you can usually group all your goods and services into you know two classes and then wait for the examiner, uh, well, pay two class fees at filing and then wait for the examiner to tell you how to uh, divide them out and uh, uh, the applicant then can decide if they want to pay the fees or drop some of the goods and services. Canada's uh, not really following that trend, unfortunately. We pretty much, um, you can pay one class fee to secure a filing date. However, if SIPO determines there's more than one class, they're going to issue an office action and require that all the fees be paid. Um, whether or not you go with all the goods and services, you do have to pay for all the classes. That's my understanding. And SIPO isn't going to be as helpful as I think the U.S. examiners have been. So they're not necessarily going to say, oh, you know, this item falls in this class and this item falls in another. They might say, oh, your whole description appears to cover more classes than what you paid. But they might not break it all out nice, nicely and neatly for you. I think that's my uh, my understanding, so it's something to be aware of. So uh, in terms of other changes, examination, well, um, in examination, I mean, right now for applications that we filed prior to June 17th, um, when we're filing responses, generally we are now classifying them um, when we're filing the revised applications. And I think the other um, thing to mention as far as the needs classification is for, there's no registration fee, as Janice mentioned, but for applications filed after June 17th. Um, for applications filed prior to June 17th, regardless of the number of classes, you still have to pay the registration fee. And it's just one registration fee. It's just a one fee. registration That's fee. Right. Yes. So, uh, Mina, for the renewal, uh, any tips with respect to renewal and classification? Well, I think as Janice mentioned, um, we are encouraging clients to classify portfolios, you know, at one shot instead of doing it on a case-by-case basis. Um, do it ahead of time, uh, at least four months or more before the renewal is due. Um, the other thing is not everyone who can do the renewal can do the classification. So we're finding that there are some renewal services who are able to file a renewal of a registration. However, they're not able to do the classifications. It has to be a Canadian agent that does that. So um, again, I think the big tip is just do it ahead of time and uh, you know classify and keep in the goods and services that you want the registration to be renewed for. Thanks. Okay, so let's let's return to the topic of examination for a bit. So I know from personal experience that SIPO is quite delayed, um, but 
they announced that they had hired several new examiners and it was expected that that would result in an improvement uh, in terms of processing time as well as an improvement of in, in the quality of examination. Janice, any um, any comments on that? I feel like you're making me say all the bad things <laughs> about SIPO. And we know you're a very positive person. <laughs> right, I'm very supportive and SIPO does lots of good things and they're certainly trying, I think, really hard to address some of these uh, struggles that they've they've had and you're right they've hired lots of new examiners but we are still seeing quite a delay in first examination I think it's about 15 months uh, I've got some that are longer mm -hmm. I've heard that applications that are filed in French get examined faster oh I had not heard that that's um, a good tip okay so that's <laughs> that's great for our our colleagues and our clients in Quebec but um, hopefully this is something we're going to see uh, improves, but not yet. Okay, another piece that SIPO uh, and the Trademarks Office invested in was the Trademark Database. Uh, it's now up, uh, more up to date since the new law has taken effect. Mina, um, do you want to comment on the database? Have you, has it changed your life? <laughs> um, has not changed my life. I mean, the look, <laughs> the look and feel is a little bit different. I mean, essentially most of the same information is available. Unfortunately, the big change most Canadian practitioners have been waiting for has not happened yet, and that's uh, to have the file histories of the, of the applications and registrations online. Um, as most of us know, in the U.S., that's been really, really handy for us to just be able to uh, look at a file history on our client's marks or on uh, various other marks. So we are not there yet, hopefully uh, sometime soon, but unfortunately that hasn't happened. I think, in fact, this is on their mandate, uh, but they knew that they couldn't implement the new law and do the mm -hmm. whole new database at the same time. So what about uh, assignments and changes in ownership, Janice? Well, so that's another area where there's very little information on SIPO's database compared to the U.S. In the U.S., you can obtain copies of the entire assignment, um, security agreements, change of names. In Canada, we do see often the, the changes in title or the chain in title, but not uh, any particulars. And the good news, though, is with the new law taking effect, SIPO is not requiring that we file copies of assignments if we're representing the registrant. If we're on behalf of the registrant recording an assignment, you don't need to send a copy. So that's quite handy. Already, have you received any confirmation yet? Because we filed a few like that, so I'm curious to see. I have. Okay. I have. I did get a couple of objections where we weren't representing the existing owner. So our client had purchased a portfolio when we were recording it and they said no you need to send us a copy of the executed assignment. Okay. Now you know in Canada though it, it's already been quite an easy process recording changes in ownership because we don't need to file we've never had to file copies of the change of names uh, documents. We don't need to file any documents for change of address the documents don't need to be notarized or legalized. So this was one step more in the right direction. So what other changes have you seen or do you foresee, Janice? I think trademark searching is going to become more challenging and already I'm seeing that as a result there's you know been a big boost of filings with the new law taking effect not just by the trademark squatters that we saw but I think a lot of our clients wanted to benefit from 
um, the low government fees, knowing that the floodgates were coming, you know, were going to be opened, allowing for anyone to obtain a registration without use, we're seeing a more crowded register. So searching is going to be more difficult. Uh, I think we're also seeing an increase and we expect to see an increase with respect to oppositions and non-use cancellation proceedings. And Mina, so what do you recommend to those clients that are thinking about seeking protection or using their marks in Canada now that we have um, a new trademark law? Well, I think as always, I mean, it's prudent conduct a trademark search before you use your trademark um, and before you apply to register for the mark. I think searching is going to become more complicated now that we don't have any use information on, um, particularly on new applications. Um, we'll probably have to do a lot more investigations into how parties are using marks that uh, come up in searches. But again, I think that that's an important step in the whole process. Also file your application as soon as you can. Um, I mean, while we've mentioned that there are class fees now, um, Canada is still quite inexpensive compared to other jurisdictions. It's important to get uh, first on the register. And uh, I think that's an important big step is, uh, you know, to file your application before someone else does and uh, with Madrid we are expecting more incoming applications so um, again really important to get your application on file as soon as you can. Agreed. <laughs> um, thanks so final rapid-fire question any new trademark practice notices that um, our listeners should be aware of? I think we all have that link probably bookmarked now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mina is there any um, any practice notices that you think there's a couple that um, I've just recently had experience with, so I thought I'd mention. Uh, one is we now are able to, there's a practice notice that deals directly with this. Um, you're now able to appoint a temporary agent. So for the purpose of submitting um, a one-time communication such as you know requesting a change of name or even a classification request, you don't have to be the agent of a record. Uh, you can be appointed as a temporary agent to just um, take that one step and then what happens is after that step has been recorded uh, the previous agent will be back on the file so we've had to do that a number of times now with classification even though we weren't uh, the agent of record the other one that's kind of interesting um, recently well prior to June 17th we had filed an application which had uh, letters as well as superscript numbers so SIPO actually um, classified, not classified that, but described that as a design mark, which we didn't want that to be the case. So um, there is a practice notice on standard character claims and how you can revise your application to include a standard character claim. So we've recently just done that. Um, basically, as long as your standard character appears in the set of standard characters in the practice notice and you can say that um, the mark still retains its character, you, you should be able to um, be able to add that standard character claim. So that remains to be seen whether or yeah, not... Yeah, that is actually something new. We never had a standard character claim on Canadian applications. And the other thing uh, that I've noticed a lot is with respect to color applications. So now we actually can file the color version of the mark. We still have to have a color claim description but we file in color, whereas before June 17th, you could file in black and white with just your color claim. And then, of course, if you did file in color, 
before June 17th and you didn't have a color claim, SIPO is going to issue an office action and ask you to send in a color application. I think some clients get um, a little bit confused or worried when they see in our trademark journal uh, everything is in black and white. Um, but in fact, we do file in color now, and but all color marks have to have a color description accompanying that mark. There's a number of other practice notices, yeah. and I guess uh, the one that's going to be most interest is non-traditional marks, mm -hmm. but I think that's a whole other podcast yeah. on its John, own. I love that for the very end, <laughs> yeah, for so sure. Jonathan and Tamara talked about that um, during the last, and, and uh, it does sound like there's lots of wild cards or still unknowns mm -hmm. in that category as well. Um, and we'll see how that shakes out, I guess. Yeah, but I think, you know, it's been a lot of positive changes uh, since June 17th, and we're working really well to get through all of the the, the details and the big stuff. And um, But it's quite exciting since Canada hasn't made changes of this significance in, what, 150 years? Yeah. So lots of changes on the ground here. Lots of changes for Canadians looking to file abroad. Lots of changes for anybody using the Madrid Protocol that chooses to, and we encourage you to designate Canada. Thank you both very much for um, for today's talk. Any final words? Well, we're we're always happy to answer any questions. You can contact any member of our trademark group that you work with, or uh, or. All three of us, and we're <laughs> happy to answer your questions, and stay tuned. Yeah. Thanks, Cut. Thank Thanks. you. Our guests for today's podcast have been Janice Breskin and Mina Chana. Information on this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Janice and Mina would be pleased to advise you. You can subscribe to our podcast by visiting breskinandpar.com slash podcast. There you can access all the episodes, additional information on each topic, and stay on top of what's happening with IP in Canada. So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. That way you'll never miss an episode. It's free and it notifies you when there's a new one. Thank you for listening to today's episode presented by Breskin and Parr LLP. Until next time.